had conversations with you on Jesus and about your faith. And if you're not the first Christian in your family, if it was your parents, who was it that talked to them about Jesus, okay? And then the second question is, if you have never found Jesus, what would be the greatest loss in your life? If you were to imagine your life as a non-Christian, what would be the loss from that? And lastly, if you're not a Christian, um, what is it, what's the most important thing that you're looking for coming to church this Sunday or trying to explore the Christian faith? I'm going to give us a good amount of time, maybe five whole minutes. Uh, I know, it's probably like a 20-minute discussion question, but I'll give us five, six minutes. Uh, try to get with one other person so that, um, you know, you could both share, but make sure there's no one left out around you, okay? And then I'll come back up and we'll work through the sermon together. All right, thanks so much for sharing, everyone. Oh, he broke my time limit. Let's see. So I grew up as a Christian. Um, I remember when I was about three or four years old, my mom, she's a devout Christian. My dad was a very devout Buddhist at the time. And I don't know if this is a real memory. My memories get fuzzy. But I've shared it enough times where I think it's real. Have you ever done that before? So I remember my parents getting into like a little bit of a squabble of whether to take me to temple or to church. And so they ended up like, okay, let's stop fighting about this and ask our, our kid, right? So I'm like three years old, and my dad's like, why don't you go to temple? And my mom's like, why don't you go to church? I'm like, I don't go to church. And I just started going to church from then on out. So that's, and then I gave my life to Christ around that time. Uh, my pastor preached a sermon, and my, I remember my mom holding my hand. And then from then on, I just really felt like I had this real relationship with Jesus. And my mom, she became a Christian when she was in Taiwan. There were some missionaries there. And she would remember kind of going to school or coming back from school. And these missionaries by their church steeple would give out candy and like pamphlets and, and stuff like that. And she just had this really like, I guess if you give ki kids candy, you just, they just love you, right? So she would hear the bell. She would salivate. She would go get her candy. You know, there's an old experiment about that. And then, and then she, so she was curious about Christianity. She came to the U.S. and she was in Texas. And there was just such a aroma of of, of Christ there for her. She, she was hosted by a white family who loved the Lord. And then on Sunday, she would just see her whole city transform. Everyone would dress up in their best attire. Uh, the women were beautiful. The man, men looked so handsome. And she'd just see them all dressed up. All the shops would close and everyone would go to church. And that just really sparked her interest. And so she thought, she went to church a few times then, but she thought, hey, when I get to California or when I get a stable job and finish my uh, schooling, I'm going to go check out this Christian thing. So she finally felt a little settled in, and she was at a park. And at this park, she met um, this random Chinese lady, and she asked her, hey, do you know of a Christian church I can go to? And she's like, I'm not Christian, but I'll look around for you. So this non-Christian, probably Buddhist lady, uh, finds a friend who goes to church and introduces my mom to that friend. And so they invite her to a Bible study. She pulls up into this cul-de-sac, and she was really nervous. The house was across the street. And she's like, I don't know. Maybe I should just go home. I don't know if you've walked into church your first time and felt really uh, a lot of anxiety about that. But that's how my mom felt. And so she was kind of just sitting there, not sure if she would go in or go home. 
But then this man runs across the street and asks her if she's there for the Bible study. And because of him, she goes uh, into the Bible study and learns about Jesus. We had our pastors really shepherded her well, and she becomes Christian. And then, like I said, a few years later, I become Christian. And then a few years after that, my mom's brother becomes Christian, my uncle. And his family becomes Christian. And my dad becomes Christian when I turn 12. And then my mom's parents become Christian. I remember my, my grandma from my mom's side, she was uh, diagnosed uh, with cancer and, and starting to pass. And we had shared the gospel with her over and over again. But during that moment, my, my pastor came in and again sat next to her um, in bed and shared the gospel. And she became Christian um, during kind of the last moments of her life. I remember I went to Taiwan, and I tried to preach the gospel to my dad's parents after he had become Christian, and I, I was so frustrated. I didn't know how to articulate the gospel. I started in, like, Genesis with Adam and Eve. and had no idea how to get to Jesus, right? I'm, like, maybe 11 or 12. I was getting really upset, and then finally, I just told my grandma, why don't you call my parents, and they'll explain it to you. So my, my grandma calls my parents, and I'm, like, not happy. And then um, I'm just frustrated. And then my parents explained the gospel to my grandma, and she becomes Christian. And I remember at that point, I remember my aunt looking at her and saying, you can't just become Christian because you love your grandson. Like, that, the, you, you're leaving, like, your whole heritage behind of Buddhism. But she's like, I'm, I'm willing to do that. And then she starts praying and listening to, um, listening to worship songs. And I remember, in, as I visited her in her last days, she would again and again pray the Lord's Prayer. And her husband became Christian as well. All because my mom gave her life to Christ, right? So many pieces of our family knew Jesus through her. But there's some, like, blessings, and then there's also, a, like, a downside of being Christian so early. I, I, a lot of us were raised at church, and it's kind of all we knew it's like, it's like being a fish in water. You know, I, I have no concept of what it's like to not be able to have clean water. Everywhere I go, I could turn on the faucet and drink water if I'm thirsty. I could even go to a gas station and get a key to their bathroom, and it's ghetto, but I turn on the water, and I can drink out of it. And then I look at these other countries, or I watch documentaries of people who have so little access to clean water where they have to go miles to drink out of a well, or, and that's their whole day, just getting water for their family. Or they're drinking out of a river that they're also dumping their trash and their feces in. And all of this uh, diarrhea and viruses are being spread, bacteria. It's just a different world. And we have a really hard time conceptualizing those things, right? Being an American, my greatest challenge for food is, is what I shouldn't eat, and eating less. Can you imagine someone from a third world country struggling to eat food, uh, find good food every day, hearing about us trying to cut down on food as our main struggle with food? Like, it's just mind-blowing, right? And then I look at my Christian faith, and I feel a similar way about it. There's so much of it that I don't appreciate anymore, or that I can forget its value. You know, I, I think about how if I wasn't Christian, the way that I would fear death, you know, what it's like to go day to day and be uncertain if I would have life uh, the next day or be uncertain about whether I would go to heaven or not. I've met a lot of people from other religions and have stopped to talk with them. 
and most of them don't feel certain about being in their heaven. There's a hesitance. There's a fear. There's, man, did I do enough good things to make it? I've talked to even monks and priests uh, in, in Hinduism, and even they can't say with certainty sometimes that they're going to be in the better place, in the good place. And then I think about atheists, where you just look at death as maybe the end. You're going back into the grave, and it, everything turns black. And maybe there's an obsession with beauty because of our fear of death, that our whole society is caught up in beauty, because beauty isn't just aesthetics. It's also about youth. It's also about being young and not thinking, having to think about the end of our life, right? I, I'm about to turn 40. I'm like uh, two years away from 40. And when you turn 40, at least for me, <clears throat> it's like a countdown to 50. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And then you're 50. And I never thought I'd be 50, right? Do you guys ever think that you'll be 50 one day? Some of you are. But, <laughs> and over 50. But, I mean, you just don't think about turning 50 in your 20s. Um, and so we have a whole society wrapped up in beauty, wrapped up in CRISPR and like genetics, wrapped up in medicine, wrapped up in trying to be young again because we're afraid of death. And then I think about what it's like to be truly alone because I've been Christian for so long. There's this real sense that God's with me all the time, to have someone to talk to and share my heart with, to have someone who really loves me in a deep and significant way. Wherever I am, wherever I go, he's there with me. But I imagine, again, what it's like to feel completely alone. To sit in a room and just be completely isolated and by myself. And just with my thoughts. And maybe that's why we have a culture that's obsessed with falling in love. Obsessed with finding that one man or that one woman. Believing that if we had that person, we wouldn't be alone anymore. That we would have someone to share life with. But if you have a girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife, you know that there's times where you're apart from each other and you're still alone. Or you're with them and you feel alone because there's aspects of who you are that they just don't understand. There's going to always be disconnect. No matter how many years you're married, there's parts of you that you're frustrated where you just can't connect with that other person. But being a Christian, you have God who knows you deeply and can connect with you, what it's like to carry your own sins as someone who doesn't know Jesus and to have the weight of your worst moments haunt you and come back like a ghost over and over again or trying to find purpose, a purpose that's lasting. You know, we, we are in a society where we often hear, find your own purpose, you know, make your own road. But isn't there something thin about that? Isn't there something about that where you're like, man, I don't know if I want to base my life off of really, off of this purpose that I just kind of found yesterday, you know, that I just kind of like discovered or, or fabricated. And is it really worth 40 years? Is it really substantial? Does it really have value? I, I look at what we get from Jesus. And over and over again, I think about him solving the largest uh, struggles, the largest gaps in our life, whether it's forgiveness or being her son and daughter or having purpose or eternal life. One of my friends, he, he grew up in uh, Beijing, spent all of his life there, and he, he like struggled in elementary school 
you know, even in elementary school, you're struggling to get to the best junior high and high school. And you're competing with everyone else around you. You go to school, and then you just study, and then you go to sleep, and you do the same thing over again. That was his whole life. And then he got to the best high school. And then he competed with millions of other students to get to the best college. And then he got to the best college. And then he competed with like hundreds of thousands of other students to get to the best law school in Beijing. And then he did that. And then he worked for the best law firm in Beijing. I mean, the competition is, it makes graduating out of Yale look like a walk in the park when you're competing with so many people with that one singular desire. And he describes his life. He says, when I was the lawyer of the best law firm in Beijing, and I didn't know Jesus, he says, I, I felt like I was like in a boat, a small boat with an oar, but in this ocean, and it's black, and, and there's rain and waves pounding against the boat. I didn't know if I would survive, but I wanted to. And I took the oar, and every day I would row as hard as I could, but I didn't know where I was going, or even if there was land to get to. And he's like, that was my entire life. Even though everyone else wanted to be me, that's how I felt internally. And then he found Jesus. Someone just invited him to go to church. He sat there. He said the sermon was terrible. (laughs) But there was an invitation to know Jesus and to receive the gospel. And he took it. And he said, it was like I finally found land. And I could build my life on it. And he became a professor of a seminary that actually got shut down. I remember just grieving with him as um, communist China has really kind of wrapped its arms really tight around the church. Um, But he's willing to give up his life for the gospel. You know, I, I look at this passage and I see this amazing invitation into eternal life, into relationship with God, into purpose. And and we see how different re- people respond to this invitation. Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles, uh, please open it with me. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell them, who have been invited, that have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This is the first half of the parable. And what we see here is Jesus is explaining God's kingdom, one of invitation. There's a king who wants to celebrate with his whole kingdom, his servants, the wedding of his son. It's extremely important. And he's inviting everyone to join him, but they reject his invitation. And it was a really substantial rejection. I don't know if you have a brother or sister, but I have a little sister who I'm basically her hero. And I love her so much. We're like four years apart. I have friends that are much younger than her. But when we get together, she's like definitively my little sister. And I'm definitively her older brother. She'll just come to me. She'll like talk for 
an hour and then we'll go home, you know? And I still pay for stuff because she's my little sister. And she invited me to officiate her wedding, which was like a huge honor that I got to uh, marry her and her husband and speak into their life. But could you imagine me saying no to her? Could you imagine her asking me to go to her wedding and to officiate? I'm like, sorry, Winnie, I can't make it. In fact, I'm not even showing up to your wedding. That would be an enormous statement, right? How would you describe that? I can't do it without, like, bad words. It's like it would be saying so many terrible things to my sister to not show up to her wedding, right? When me and my, my wife got married, it would, be saying, it would be making a huge statement for my parents not to come. There would be something wrong. Everyone would be asking why. In their culture, when, you're, when the king invites his servants to a wedding and you say no, it's, it's worse than saying no to your child. It's worse than saying no to your sibling. It's a, it's a deep insult to the king. It's, it's almost treacherous. And that's what's happening here, that the servants are saying no to their king. But then I imagine the weight of saying no to God's invitation. He gives his son to us. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He says, come into my kingdom, partake eternal life. Be your son or daughter in my family. Experience forgiveness from my son. Spend the rest of your life in fellowship with me. Do we feel the same weight when we reject Jesus or when our friends reject Jesus? Or is it just like, eh, that's fine. There's other things out there. You know, there's hyperboles. I think this is like a hyperbole, right? Like the opposite of a hyperbole. Rejecting a king, rejecting my sister, my parents rejecting my wedding is nothing. When we think about what it would mean to reject God. To say no to his son who's dying on the cross for us. To say no to the God of the universe who created the world with whispers, who formed our whole life in his hands and holds everything in it. And we feel like as creation, we can stand before him and say we're too busy with our business, to say we're too engrossed with our child or too obsessed with our friends or our dating life or our career to be with God. Do we feel the weight of that statement? Do we think we're just rejecting like cardboard cutout Jesus that holds no value? Or do we see Jesus as the king? Right? It says that every knee will bow on earth, above the earth, and under the earth at the name of Jesus. Is there a visual we have for that? Where a billion worshipers are on their knees in love and before the king? And then his enemies are on their knees because their, their knees don't hold up. It's trembling too much. So they are on their knees as well. The demons, the ones who reject them, are also on their knees at the name of Jesus. That's the God who's giving you an invitation. It's not just a king. It's not just your parents or your sister rejecting them. It's rejecting God. And there is a weight to this. So I think the first audience of the parable is the Jews. And when he talks about, in the last part, uh, the, rejecting the servants and murdering them, 
again, it's a throwback to the prophets and to Jesus. And when we look at this prophecy of their city being burnt and destroyed, one of the closer interpretations is AD 70, when again Rome ransacks Jerusalem and takes out the temple. That in God's patience and sending servants over and over again, at some point it wanes and runs out. And God removes Jerusalem as his kingdom and his people and gifts it to us. And that's really the next passage here. He says to his servants after taking out that city, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I have invited do not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. To the servants, go into the streets and gather all the people. Uh, So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? Friend's a loose word here. The man was speechless. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. We're going to look at that last section first because it's a little confusing. I was confused a long time. I remember the last time I preached this passage, I just skipped that last section because I didn't read enough commentaries. We do that sometimes. Um, Like... Was he just not dressed properly? Who's dressed really casually today? Like Daniel, right? He has a t-shirt on. Brendan's wearing, like Kyle. Are they going to hell because they're wearing a t-shirt to church? You know, like they're, they are not, this person's not properly dressed. What's the big deal about that? Josh is wearing a t-shirt with his favorite football team. Is that, is that enough? And, or is it like an economic thing? I mean, what if he was being pulled out of, the, of homelessness and invited into the banquet? He just didn't have proper clothing. Like, he, he didn't own um, uh, wedding clothes. Was he getting tossed out for that? One of the interpretations that, that I bought into is that during that time, the kings would clothe their guests. So you think about Joseph. As he's sending off his brothers, he gave them clothes. Um, and we have other accounts in Scripture and in ancient society where when the king was throwing a big party, he would give clothes to their guests. And it really... It's really spoken about, again, here, kind of reflective of this passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. That the true Christians are ones in which we are wearing the righteousness of Jesus. Right? When we walk into his kingdom, we're not walking in in our old self. We are not walking in in filthy, uh, our filthy sins, that when we receive Jesus, he cleanses us, and he gives us his righteousness, and we walk into his kingdom like that. But the scary part is, is that there's people, right, in the first section who have rejected Christ over and over again. They know they're not a part of his kingdom. They don't want to be a part of his kingdom. That's one um, demographic of non-believers. The second demographic is a lot more frightening. It's people who think that they're Christians but are not. 
And that's this man. He walks into the wedding hall. He walks into the party, and he thinks he belongs there. But one day, Jesus separates the sheep and the goat. One day, Jesus separates the weeds and the wheat. One day, he clears the field, and he shows all of us who the true believers are. And there's, I think that's my greatest fear as a pastor, is to have people sit in front of me week after week to have coffee with you, to counsel you, and maybe even to believe that you're a believer, and to have you believe that. And then you're not, because I don't really know. But I think that there's people in this room who might come Sunday after Sunday, who is this man walking into the banquet, thinking that they're a believer, but not. Francis Chan gives this really cool uh, illustration. He's speaking at this huge conference, and he says, it's like everyone, what if everyone here was in the ocean or in a huge swimming pool, 15 feet deep, and we all had life vests on? So we're all floating, our heads are bobbing, and, and we're like, oh, like everyone, maybe everyone here can swim. But then you take off the life vest, and you quickly find out who's swimming and who's not able to swim. You know, my son, he has a floaty, and we were all swimming for his birthday party, and he thinks he can swim, and it's kind of scary, right? He'll put on, we, we dress him for the pool, we put on his vest, and he runs in and jumps into the pool. He looks like a corgi when he d- jumps in. It's the cutest thing. Like, all four limbs are out. But then l- yesterday, he didn't have his life vest on or his floaty on, and we, we, thought, we thought he was done, but he just jumps into the pool, and Emma Shea saves him, <laughs> and we're... And, and, he, and I think it's because he thought he could swim. But he was just being held out by a life vest. For those of us who grew up Christian, maybe we're just on floaties. Maybe it's our parents who've taken us to church week after week and makes us come here now. We're just trying to please them. Maybe we've heard sermon after sermon and we kind of live vicariously off of other Christians thinking we are them. And man, our generation has a, that's like one of our vices, right? We hear a compelling documentary or podcast, and I swear we think we've lived, we've lived our whole life for that cause, <laughs> but we've only put up three Facebook posts, you know? But we kind of, we're really good at living vicariously through another person and being passionate because we've heard another person's story. What happens when we start stripping all that away? And I couldn't even, like, if you looked at your walk this week with Jesus and you excluded small group and Sunday service and your accountability group, you excluded some of those conversations with your friends and and your college ministry, if you excluded all of that over your last four or five years, what, what what about your spiritual life is still real and vibrant, is, is just you and Jesus talking to each other. And you know him. And he knows you. And you, you feel the weight of being his child. And you're still worshiping and singing and picking up the word. Outside of all those things, because you love the word. And you want to hear his voice. And he deserves worship. We have to be careful not to be the man who 
is just floating. The woman who has a good vest, but really we can't swim. Because one day God comes in. You know, he's patient, right? Like he was patient with the Israelites. He sends us people over and over again. Even today, I'm acting as a prophet to you. I'm confronting you, some of you, with your soul. And we get that again and again in our lives. Where someone invests in your soul and, and, and says, you know, be a part of his kingdom. Be in a real relationship with Jesus. Have him for, forgive you. And one day it ends. And we stand before our Savior and either we knew him or we didn't. Either he forgave us and we followed him and we gave him our life or we didn't. That's a real day. But the last thing, the last part of this passage that I love is, is that the, God's heart is imparted to his servants. That he has this banquet and he wants to fill his home. And he sends servants over and over again to invite people in. And that's my goal. I want to be one of his servants. I want to be in the street corners inviting people into the banquet. The good and the bad. And that's how I see myself. I see him inviting this kid who didn't have much going for him to be his son or daughter. I, got to go, I get to go to prisons and uh, do prison ministry and homeless ministry and group homes over the years and sit with people who've murdered someone or who's strung out on drugs and say, God's invited you too. Isn't that amazing? That all of these promises we have in Jesus... He's given to every person that many, many, many are invited, but few are chosen. But how do we get to participate in the invitation of others, right? If we know we're, we're not the one on the floaty, we know we've received his invitation and we are his son and daughter. I believe his second calling in our life is to gift that invitation to others, to be one of those servants who goes and says, hey, God's invited you into amazing things. You've been searching for, for life instead of death. You've been searching to, to not be alone and for purpose. God wants to gift that to you. I've been thinking a lot about Renew because we're celebrating our fifth year, and it's a significant moment. And, I, and it made me kind of think back to how we started this church in the first place. And so here's Renew Church with a little cross on it. And, and actually, before we started the church, this space was a mission field before it was a church. And God had called me and Nina to be missionaries before we were pastors here. And so we spent a long time at the apartment complex right across the church. So that's Deer Park right below us. And right here, uh, adjacent to this building is Streams. And diagonal is La Costa and Lavalita. And me and my wife, we lived there for about three years. And God really sent us in as missionaries. We did three events a month for the community. But we were also tracking how many spiritual conversations we had as we were working as event coordinators. So we had over, um, I think there's only maybe three years, three, two or three years, we had 357 spiritual conversations. We saw 68 people get connected to our church. Uh, come to an evangelistic event or come to us on Sundays. We represented the gospel 70 times, uh, me and Nina. And then we also saw five people become Christian. 
And here's one of our favorite events. We actually, there's not a picture of this, but we did a huge water slide. Our church funded it. And we had like 240 people out over four hours going down the slide. It was ginormous. And we opened up the pool. We barbecued for everyone. A lot of our core team, if you were here planting with us, you were all there um, doing this event together. And as we had people sign waivers for the pool, we also invited them to VBS. And we, got, we invited maybe 150 kids from our residents uh, into VBS. And 30 of them showed up. So this is, again, like one of the first summers we had this building. Nina dressed up as Dr. Molecule. She did a great job, stayed in character. Grace and um, Josh did this like skit. And 30 kids from the community got to hear the gospel right across the street, excluding our own kids. And I remember there was this man who came in, and he brought his kid there. And I had hung out with him a few times at the apartment complex. And he's from Saudi Arabia. He's getting his master's degree here in engineering. And he's Muslim. And he comes in. I was like, man, I am so happy you, you came. And he's like, it's because of our relationship that I wanted to come and support your church event. And his kid got to go through all of our VBS stations. And he was there the whole time. So I was hanging out with him. He saw Jesus resurrect from the dead six times on video in cartoon form. And then we just had amazing spiritual conversation. A few days later, we went out to coffee and brunch, and I got to share the gospel with him. And then there was also Yasmin and Miriam. And these are the stories that really define our church. Some of you have heard them before, and it's because it's a story that has built out the DNA of Renew. They were international students from Iraq, again, also Muslim, and they, but me and Nina loved them. We, we like chased out this crazy guy from our apartment who harassed them. So that built a lot of relationship. We gave them furniture. They came over for dinner. And again and again, we tried to represent Jesus to them, invite them to church. They were open and interested, but they always politely declined. One day, their mom calls from Iraq. And she said, someone invited me to a Bible study. And I learned about Jesus. You're in America. You, could, you can learn about Jesus easily. Go to a church and learn about Jesus and so one of them calls me and says, can I come to church with you? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then they come to church. Patrick Fisher was preaching. His first slide is, who is Jesus? And from then, then, then they came over and over again. And I remember one day they asked me to baptize them. And I remember sitting by the pool and them explaining to me how in Iraq, uh, you can get, or sorry, Iran, you can get killed for converting to Christianity if you're already Muslim. And I remember one of them looked at the other and said uh, to her sister, are we willing to give up our lives to, for this faith? And they both decided they were. I remember going to the baptism, and it was just the most beautiful day. I mean, I, like the sun was shining through the clouds. We were, running, we were walking through the caves to get to the other uh, space that we use for baptism. And I'm, this is not made up. A, a seal popped out of the water and smiled at us. I mean, I'm not kidding. It happened. And then, and then I baptized them. They shared their testimony. And our little group uh, was applauding. But then we're next to the cliffs. And there were like 10, 15, 20 people applauding and cheering for them. And we didn't know them. They were just extended family, welcoming sisters into, into the fold. And I just remember again and again God's faithfulness. 
the way that we saw the apartment com community was a mission field. And then Kelsey Fullerton, there's Kelsey. Do you remember that, Kelsey? A few years back, Jonathan was still on campus. Me and Kim started up Epic with a few other people. And um, at Epic, we had all of our small groups become mission teams. So we would do like game nights, we would host food, invite friends over, share the gospel with them. Oh, that was, that was my last slide. I thought I had Philip there. <laughs> and then um, and we got to see so many people come to know Jesus through our ministry there. And when I look five years later, I see us continuing to be faithful to be missionaries to the city. I see so many of you investing in the local campuses, investing in people who have special needs and dancing with them, investing in foster kids. And that's one of my greatest joys about this church. But we're hoping that over this next year, we would mobilize not just like 20 or 30% of us to reach the city, but all of us, that all of us in this room would be equipped to be missionaries. And our small groups would be mission teams for our community. And so um, we have a missional team, and we got the permission of our small group leaders. Every small group, uh, what, at, the end of, um, at the beginning of November, we'll have a five-minute segment where we train or challenge all of us to reach out and to love our neighbor or to have a spiritual conversation or to buy a coffee, to do something that engages us in the mission of God week in and week out. Because at the end of the day, my goal, my, my um, responsibility as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right? Like all of us need to know that, man, I'm a missionary to the places where no one else can be. That God's placed me there with a purpose. And are we confident in being one of those workers that invites the good and the bad into the kingdom? I hope that one day as we share these precious stories of how we became a Christian or how our, our family's legacy of faith started, and we named that one person who had a significant impact in our life. Like I think about Uncle Francis who talked to my mom to go into the Bible study. I think about the missionaries in Taiwan handing out candy, not thinking that so many people would come out of their ministry. I wonder if because we are at Renew, our names would come up too. In the next five years or 10 years or 40 years later, when we think about how this whole family came to know the Lord, that your name would be a part of their story, that you would be the servant inviting them. I hope that our church would just have that DNA of invitation. And um, one of the things we vision cast as a team is like, what if our small groups once a year would go on this little mini mission trip as a group? You know, go hit Mexico or go to a, a space in, um, and minister to Native Americans and just love on them or downtown LA. Like, what if those were the road trips that we were envious of? Those were the road trips that we were planning. And so as we look at our fifth year, as we knew, we have this in our bones. But, and we've seen this even grow this fifth year. But I believe that more and more, every member of our church will see themselves, will, will see ourselves as a missionary.